The stages of rehabilitation can be used to inform survivors, family, friends, and communities after challenging events. The focus and language is different depending upon each group, but the pathway is the same. I want to identify and provide a brief description of the stages, not as a means of advice, but to provide insights and ideas gained by stories of individuals who experience tough and challenging events. Each guest is in a specific stage. So listen, see if you can identify what they did and are doing to move forward in their healing and recovery process. Stage two, turning point. Once survival is ensured, choices are made. The first and most important is a choice to move forward, saying yes to life. You have been tested, sometimes significantly, but you freely made the choice to push forward. A New Year's resolution in 1980 to run every day because I couldn't get myself to run consistently five days a week. I thought the only way would be to run every day. So uh, that resolution in 1980, which I was successful, uh, carried on for over 37 years until June 13th, 2017, when that everyday running streak ended. Bill Finkbeiner, a Sacramento running legend, had his everyday run streak for 37 years ended by a senseless act of violence. Today on Sliver of Hope, the podcast series on post-traumatic growth, Dr. Joyce Michael Flynn talks with Bill about stage two, turning point. In our series, focusing on guiding survivors towards growth after trauma through Metahab. Find out more at metahab.com. So today I'm going to talk with Bill Finkbeiner, and we're going to talk about how that running streak ended. And to begin with, why don't you tell us a little bit about June 13, 2017? What happened that day? Well, there's a group of us who um, typically met on Tuesday evenings. It started with the buffalo chips back in the 80s. It's where I met my wife in 1984 at a Tuesday night workout, and it's morphed over the years into handful of us, half a dozen, if we're lucky, that get together and we meet at a pizza place and go out and do a run on the levee. And in recent years, it's turned in somebody's injured or for whatever reason isn't really up to running that night. And, and we walk a lot of it. And on June 13th, we uh, didn't run a step that evening. We headed out um, on the the levee near Campus Commons Golf Course, headed down past the Guy West Bridge at Sac State, just on a walk out and back. Um, and uh, on our way back, we were within half, three quarters of a mile of our vehicles, and six of us walking together on the levee. And I was right at that edge, you know, inches from the side of the asphalt, and I hear bike, and it's typical especially when we're down on the bike trail, uh, there's not always room for multiple people to get out of the way and, you know, completely off the, the pavement. But in the levee, there's just certainly not. It's sloped immediately. Um, but um, so it's typical for somebody to yell, bike up, bike back. And so we're all aware. And I just heard the word bike. And before I could completely even get my head around to look over my shoulder, I just felt a huge impact. And it wasn't a a tire in the back or a handlebar and then my face into the ground. It was just, it felt like one impact, like just a bus. So I, um, the bike must have hit me very square because what it seemed is that my face hit instantly. Uh, 
half on the asphalt, half in the gravel that's only a few inches wide before the levee slopes down. Both of my hands apparently were on my thighs. The back of both hands were just hamburger, um, you know, road rash. And so my friends who had to witness that, um, believe the bike drug me for, you know, I don't know if it's an inch or 12 inches and then went over and then he tumbled over and crashed on the, in the grass and um, had my, I'm facing the wrong way at this point. I'm looking back from where we had come and uh, I can see blood on my shorts. Uh, I look over and I see a bike, uh, the bike that had mm -hmm. hit and gone over me and then off the edge of the levee lying in the, in the, slope of the levee in the grass and um, my friends instantly urging me to to sit still stay down and uh, you know from my perspective I knew I had really been whacked in the head but I didn't um, I didn't realize at all how serious it was I saw blood on my shorts but uh, my left thumb was broken right at the the joint uh, my third metacarpal in my left hand which neither of those makes sense when you're mm -hmm. you know they weren't they weren't overextended in reverse. They were, I, I don't even understand how against your thigh there would be the pressure to, to do that. But um, my uh, two front teeth, not the, the two, but what the dentist would refer to as number seven and eight. So my right front tooth top and the one next to it were broken off almost at the gum. And uh, uh, a skull fracture, my nose is shoved pretty far to the right, broken, and then they're by the x-rays i mean it could be 10 or 15 little fractures all through the right side of my face um, but fortunately i none of those fractures were displaced enough that they felt they had to do anything uh, you didn't to, have to have any surgical repair of that. not on my face and they wouldn't try to straighten out my nose at that point because it was a lot more important not to disrupt those other fractures i guess and and um, so I wound up with, um, of course, the nerve damage up in my forehead, resulting in the lack of sense of smell. But um, I'm a landscape contractor. I, I bleed almost every day, right. Uh, right. Uh, <laughs> climbing right. through branches and such. So the, um, the person who hit me uh, lost his phone and glasses and hat in the crash. And some friends with me called 911, which I was you know, still not realizing how serious it was. And right. I just thought we're so close. Um, you know, we can walk back to the vehicles. And I knew there was a hose bib where people would fill up their water bottles sometimes before our run and, and uh, you know, rinse off a little, of course. But right. uh, I had no idea. That it was as, as intense as it was. So I remember obviously hearing the story about this. And one of the things also... Um, I want you to talk about is the level of running that you were in, engaged in. Because you were talking about tonight, this one particular night was this relaxing kind of thing. But you'd reached not only 37 and a half years of running every day, but talk about the running you did during that time. Well, I, I started out just wanting to finish a marathon way back in the late 70s. And um, and I had grown up, Bein in German means leg. And my dad and my grandfather told us that Finkbeiner meant fleet-footed. And I kind of grew up thinking I should be a runner. 
that story turned out to be completely had nothing to do with the story we've <laughs> since learned, but but it was kind of a motivator. But um, once I'd run a few marathons, within a couple of years, I got into the ultra marathons and and uh, I ran uh, you know, fifty kilometer, fifty mile, and and a lot of hundred mile races. Fifty six times I've run one hundred miles, and thirty of those were consecutive years at the Leadville Trail One Hundred in Leadville, Colorado. Um, so that was, you know, that's really my best accomplishment in running, not placing uh, in certain races, uh, but uh, really just the longevity of, of that streak. And I guess I have that mindset with the running every day. And right. I did Leadville last year. I'll do it again. Well, now I've got two in a row. I have to do three. And, right, and, um, right. So I, I had some success, you know, as far as winning races, I've maybe won a dozen races out of, I don't know, two or three hundred, whatever I've run, um, but mostly it was more the the streak. I've still got to run the way too cool fifty k. That uh, it's down to two or three of us who have done every single year since nineteen ninety, and and at least it's not a hundred. It's easier to keep that streak up. I'd like you talking about that too because I saw um, an interview with you not too long after your accident where you were getting, you looked pretty banged up. <laughs> and then you were talking about, oh, I'm going to have some surgery done on my thumb. And in a couple of days, I'm going to get out and start running again. And talk a little bit about that, because that was really, I, I thought that was, I, I identified with that. Like, ah, yeah, I got this little thing going, and uh, a couple of days, I'm going to get out and run again. Yeah, I think the the biggest thought I had from the very start, well, two things, um, one is I thought, I'm just injured. I'm not sick. They're not trying to diagnose and cure cancer in me. I'm, I'm at my worst point right now. I've got nowhere to go but up. So that was always kind of right from the start. I've had friends that have gone through cancers. Uh, the running partner I mentioned has had four, cancer four times now. At, at the time of my accident, it was three that he had survived and, uh, and still does today. Um, so... I kind of just had that perspective that I'm a lot luckier than someone who's sick because I'm, I'm at my very worst right now and nowhere to go but up. But I also believe that it wasn't as bad as it was. Uh, I thought, you know, in a month I'm going to be 100%. I'll be back landscaping, uh, not realizing my arm would still be in a cast at, at that point. Uh, oh, not only that I would be running, but I needed to. I didn't, um, mm -hmm. whether it's work or running, mm -hmm. um, I didn't want to have this accident cause me to spend the rest of my life kind of, you know, putting everything either in a before the accident category or after the accident. You know, right. in my mind, it needed to not have any permanent um, symptoms. And, and that's what I totally believed at first, even though a lot of friends would would either talk about, you know, you might be out of work for six months or four months. And when I'm thinking a few weeks as soon as I right. use my hands right. and uh, other people asking me, so if you can't landscape, um, have you thought about what else you might do? And, and I hadn't really thought of that. I, you know, it just, it wasn't like I made it a goal to, to think positive. It was just, I mean, maybe just being naive. I just hadn't crossed my mind that there would be permanent right. symptoms from this. Well, you know, <clears throat> I want to talk a little bit about it because we're 
profiling the stages of metahabin, we're talking about stage two, which is the turning point. And maybe you can give us a little bit of a glimpse of that idea where your turning point almost, it seemed like more fluid, where there wasn't, as you said, a before and after, but it was just your turning point was consistent. Like, here's where I am, and I have nowhere to go but up. And so you made that I you made that mindset or you got into that mindset pretty early on. So in that point in time where you said, I have nowhere to go but up, and this is how I'm going to do it, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I think it just probably the first morning I woke up in the hospital, um, that's just the first thought I had was that, and I, and I didn't look in the mirror until the day. I don't know if I looked still in the hospital or after I got home. Um, so I didn't know how bad I looked. And it was my face. There were a lot of lacerations and bruises. My right eye was swollen shut for, I don't even know if it was two or three weeks. I should have journaled all this stuff. But, but just from where I was, and I wasn't really in, in much pain uh, through the whole thing um, until about a week later when other back issues started really being a problem. But, you know, because I wasn't feeling that much pain, and some people think it's because of all the pain you just endure on purpose running 100 milers, right, that right. maybe I just, uh, it, it didn't bother me as much as it should have. Um, but it just seemed natural to, you know, it just hit me right away that, you know, I'm, I'm at the bottom now and I can't do anything about where I am. It, it happened in a split second. And, um, you know, I didn't have to think about it and think, how am I going to get through this? It was just really the, the first thought I had was that it can only get better from this point. What did the people around you, uh, and I'm going to talk about, you know, the close people, you, Beth, who I've run with before, and I know her, and your children, what did what did they process like? Did they get this, yeah, we're here now and we're all on board and we're going to move him forward this way? Or did they try and actually hold you back a little bit because they were concerned? What was going on in that realm? Yeah, I think all of the family stuff went very well. It was uh, unfortunate for my wife and daughter, but fortunate for me that uh, the previous Friday was the final day of the school year. My wife teaches and my daughter's in college. And so they their first day of summer vacation was, you know, Saturday or Monday, the day before the accident. And uh, so they were there, you know, in the house and, and I was spent, I guess, over a month in the recliner, 23 and three quarter hours a day. And so they were there to, you know, to feed me and there was some cleaning and medication and stuff on my face that my daughter uh, especially, and she'd get home if she was out for a while. She'd come back and check with Beth, make sure I'd had my. It was supposed to be three times a day, and if it hadn't happened yet, you know, she'd just go get the stuff and then uh, dab off go. my face and put the medication on. And so it was, you know, it just seemed very positive. My son um, had uh, graduated from college in Reno and and still lives there and works out of town a lot from Reno. So he was down at Mammoth Lakes or somewhere the day of the accident. And uh, so he came home, of course, right, right away right, to right. see me. But um, um, but yeah, it seemed, you know, family-wise, um, 
you know, they treated it as if it wasn't that big a deal, you know, that, Interesting. you know, and, and I wasn't really going to do anything. It became, um, I mean, just to get with a cane out of the chair and to the bathroom down the hall and back was a huge effort. Yeah. A I, huge I, effort. I yeah. would think I need to brush my teeth, but I thought I can't, if I stand that long, I don't know if I can get back to the chair. You know, it was, right. it, it just seemed so odd and it was so foreign to me to be, you know, in that sort of a physical situation that, uh, that I was yeah. that limited, but they were just, you know, nothing but supportive. And uh, what about going back into um, <clears throat> the, you know, turning back into your running again, or turning back into your work again? What gave you some help with that? Yeah, I guess I was eager to do it because it's what I was used to, and then I'm not in a position, even though I'm. Uh, Social Security age, um, not in a position to retire, so there wasn't, you know, it wasn't a choice I had to make. Uh, you know, I knew I had to go back to work, and again, I'm still uh, at that point not realizing even what limitations there might be. Um, Running-wise, I, you know, you've run that long, and so often it's certain training partners you spend so many, you know hundreds of runs with right. in some case that that they were encouraging. I was nervous um, once I could run, which I missed 100 days of running. They gave me the go-ahead at like day 97 or 8. So I thought, you know, being me, I'll find a good round number and, and start running again. <laughs> um, but they were very encouraging. I was just very concerned about landing on my head again, um, not just because wounds weren't completely healed, but just... Um, then with you know no medical knowledge, it just seems to me I don't want to get hit in the same spots that I got hit that night right. on the head. So uh, and my balance wasn't perfect at first, and um, you know several months before I was really comfortable. If I had to, you know, jump over a creek in a trail or skip across a couple rocks, um, uh, you know, I just wasn't completely confident. And uh, not just my left broken left hand and thumb recently recovered, but I had never spent a month on my back and realized that your wrists are, you, they're barely usable. I mean, they're barely strong enough to brush your right, teeth. Right. Uh, I wasn't going to catch myself if I fell, you know. I, right. So, uh, so it was mainly just the real obvious physical things that I was thinking about rather than psychological issues. How is that for you now? When you're talking about, you know, you seem, you know, I <clears throat> obviously the listeners can't see you. I can see you now. You look, you're healed and things look good. But what about this? What about the psychological or the emotional aspect of this? I, I would say that I'm probably feeling some of that more now than I did early on. Just when I see things that aren't going to to come back, probably. Um, so I'm frustrated, but they're, they're brief. Um, you know, my left thumb doesn't bend more than a couple degrees where it was surgically repaired. Um, I can't smell or taste because of nerve damage in my head. So I'm, and I guess I can't taste because I can't smell. Salt is the only actual taste that I can sense right now. And, um, you know, so you think of the potential, even with working with engines, you know, is, is this can diesel or gasoline? You know, you can't tell by smelling it. 
Um, you can't tell if there's a gas leak on a machine or, or you know, right. some of those things you use your sense of smell for. Um, as a landscaper, I can't smell flowers, you know. So there's things that, uh, you know, something will remind me and, and you know, it'll, it'll bother me temporarily that, um, mm -hmm. you know, that the situation is what it is. But, um, but again, those, you know, all of those things I feel like I can't do anything about. So uh, my mom always had all these, she, her maiden name was McVicker, and she had all these Irish prayers tiles all over the house. And, but one that isn't an Irish prayer, but the, uh, the serenity prayer, the, the right. God grants, grant me the serenity to accept the things I can't, the strength or the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. Um, I think that whole thought, and I've, you know, I've seen that a thousand times in my childhood. Um, you know, I've, I've thought about that saying a lot. The, you know, there's the neurologists say they don't right. work on nerves. You know, if it right. may come back, probably won't at this point. But um, you know, so the things that I just have no control over, right. they, to me, you know, I can put out of mind. You know. 95% of the time. And you know, that brings me to uh, the thought as you're going through that, that you actually make, that you actually hit the turning point many times where you do get into this, oh, I don't have this sense of smell anymore. I don't have this and this, but you don't stay there. You, you turn, you move on and say, well, you know, again, with the serenity prayer, or you see some other way to move past that. And it is clear that people I've talked to who have been through major issues like that, there's those multiple and they, shifts of mind, shifts of a mindset or shifts of turning things around saying, yes, this is a reality, but this is how I'm going to choose to look at it. This is where I'm going to go with that. Did it change relationships in your life? Did you think that you had more of an appreciation of certain things? We know when people go through serious situations like this and they um you know come out of it that research has shown us that they can actually grow and they actually not embrace the event but embrace the lessons that they've learned from this so talk about maybe your relationships your appreciation to get back into work your appreciation for running again yeah i suppose there is some of that partly because of um one of the men uh who was with me that evening, who I've been my primary training partner for 20 years, who's had 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 cancer three times and a year ago went through another bout of all different cancers all over his body, um, where it did definitely give me a lot more understanding when people are in a situation kind of the way they, over the years I've struggled to keep, you know, if I'm gonna be running well, I've gotta be very light and, and I always know that, and I can't eat half of the stuff I want to eat without gaining weight. So um, it just like losing weight um, over the years, it cut especially twice that I had uh, uh, used Weight Watchers and very successfully, it, it kind of made me realize that, um, you know, more of an appreciation for people who struggle with whatever, if it's gambling or alcohol and the other things that never had any desire for, but, um, uh, but it, it, it gave me understanding. And I think this did for people when they're going through stuff. And like I said before, I, I just think a instantaneous 
injury like that, um, you know, I was fortunate that it was that instead of an illness that, uh, you know, whatever they're doing to me might work and it might not, and they might not even know what the illness is yet. Um, and then the, probably the problem work-wise is just my lower back gets so stiff mm-hmm. that I'm, um, you know, I wake up and I'm kind of hunched over on some mornings, you know, maybe three days a week where it takes a while to get fully straight and, and all that. But I do my little very short, less than two mile run in the morning and I try to do it in the dark because I don't really want an audience. And, and, and uh, <laughs> by the time it's over, I've kind of loosened up. Yeah, and yeah. I wonder about how age affects all of it, even getting back and trying to run a hundred miler again. Um, you know, it's... I look at the uh, stats, the race results. It's you know, ten or fifteen percent of the sixty-year-olds finish these these runs. If you look at right. a race that's got twenty guys, you're lucky if right. three of them finish. You know, so. So what's it? Uh, talking a little bit now. What's life like for you now? What's life? What, what's life about for you now? Well, I feel like it's not much different than before. Um, I can still I can work if I were a left-handed dentist I'd be yeah I'd I'd be in a bad spot my uh left fingers don't bend really well if I have to count you know pick a dime out of a handful of change to hand a cashier I just fumble around until I eventually pour it into the left hand and pick it out with my right cuz I just don't have the real fine motor skills there but you know to grip a tractor steering wheel or a wheelbarrow or the things I need to do for work right um it's it's not really an impact at this point. Um, Life-wise, otherwise, um, the lack of sense of taste uh, is a real bummer, partly because my wife over the recent, you know, past 10, 15, 20 years has really gotten into cooking, gourmet cook, organized um, uh, gourmet supper club that we participated in for years and years. And and probably our one thing we do is once a month go out somewhere really nice to dinner. And uh, just a few months into that, you know, probably by the second time I was able, you know, to get out and we went, um, she questioned one night, you know, I wonder if we should keep doing this, you know, and I'm thinking, yeah, we, you know, right. that that was too important. It was something we definitely did together. And, and I enjoy food. If something I liked before, I, I love to go have a cheeseburger one of my favorite places, even though the salt on the fries is the only specific taste that I'm get. getting. Mm-hmm. I unfortunately, because they say one of the dangers is you lose interest in eating and you know you wither away. Well, I I wish I would have gotten <laughs> some of that, but I didn't. And so maybe to finish up, let's t- uh, you know we both run. We know how important that is and how special that is. And you have alluded back that you are doing a little bit of running, but talk about what you, the race you entered into just a little over a year after your accident or after that event. Well, I had, I had uh, as I mentioned, I had done the Leadville Trail 100 30 consecutive years from 1984 to 2013 and got injured the next year. And it, it ended up being several years. So actually in 2017, I was ready to go back and... Um, had actually gotten into pretty good shape and was ready to do it. And I was only nine weeks away the night of the accident. And of course, I I wasn't even allowed to go to 10,000 feet to spectate because of the skull fractures and all that. So um, I still entered it. You have to enter in December to run the following August to try to run here a couple months ago and just 
didn't get myself into condition to right. to perform well enough. I had some issues that got me off to a slow start and behind massive horde, you know, hundreds of people that I didn't want to be behind on single track trail. Um, but I just couldn't make up time until I ended up what they call timing out. It missed a cutoff time about halfway through. So um, I do want to, I don't want that to be my last 100 mile attempt. I, I really feel at some point I, I need to go finish one and, and ideally that one. It's, it's not the toughest one around. There's tons of them, dozens and dozens now, but, um, but it has a 30 hour time limit and typically the tougher ones have a little bit more time and you can do a lot more hiking. And so, so I, I do hope to, to finish it someday and, and, uh, but I've got to really, uh, yeah, I can't take it for granted that I can go out and fake my way through it on minimal training. I know at this stage of my life, I've, I've got to dedicate more time and no sense in entering it till I'm, till I know that I'm prepared to dedicate more time than I have in recent years to it. I like, I liked your term too, but not taking something for granted because that for me is the big thing that when I'm able to participate in life in different ways, I, I really don't take it for granted. I'm just, I'm always so appreciative. I get to do this and I get to be there. What about the guy who uh, was on the bike? Yeah, so, you know, at first, well, uh, you know, he's on a bike, and I always like to mention, because being a runner, I've got a lot of friends who are cyclists, that um, it wasn't a cyclist who hit me. I, you know, he appeared to my friends to be homeless or maybe just someone who isn't allowed to get a driver's license. He wasn't a guy out there training for a, a century ride or something. Um, he, uh, from what I've learned, he denies hitting anyone uh, when he was questioned um, by the, the authorities, um, which, you know, there were, you know, six of us there and I didn't see him. I never saw him that night, but, um, but they all saw him and there, you know, there's no question of what happened. Um, and there was a big uproar about prosecuting him and doing whatever they could and they just couldn't define a crime that he had committed because it's not a roadway so mm -hmm. it's not hit and run i i was surprised that you could injure somebody and leave them even by accident uh, i can't understand how anybody could have done that either intentionally or not intentionally because on the levee a, a quarter mile away you'd see a, a house cat walking across there's nothing obscuring any vision and so if you don't see that i don't know how you yeah. stay on the levee without riding off the side so it's really hard to explain and at the same time if if um, you saw your worst enemy a uh, quarter mile ahead and you thought i'm on a bike i'm going to go as fast as i can and run him down i my first thought would be i'm flying 30 feet mm -hmm. he's just getting knocked down i'm the one that's going to get the worst of that so right. you know so i can't even explain how it could happen or how it did happen it just uh, no way to explain how anybody in their right mind could have done it either way intentionally or unintentionally did you get to meet him at all did you no um i have seen him once i was given his address uh, after the report and drove by the house because uh, as i said my friends assumed he was probably homeless uh, being out there mm -hmm. you know in that part of the of sacramento uh, along the river, but, um, and it just so happened that the day I drove by, which was, I was coming home from getting my cast removed, uh, 
and driving back to Auburn, I thought, oh, I'll drive by that address. And he just happened to be walking around in his front yard when I drove by. So that was, so I have seen him that one mm -hmm, time. Mm -hmm. um, and I've seen pictures of him, a friend who was with me. He admitted his name as he wrote off. Friends asked, what's your name? And he called back and uh, gave them the correct name. And one of the guys found him on Facebook immediately. And so, so, he, so we know who he is. He hit you and then he kept going. Yeah, he got up. Apparently, the story is that my friend who's um, of the five people with me, the one I've known since middle school, pulled the bike back up onto the levee. And then he got up and came up and insisted on taking the bike and leaving. And uh, and I wasn't aware of any of this, um, even though I'm sure I was conscious at that time because I, you know, I saw the bike when I looked over my shoulder when it was still lying on the in the grass. Um, and they said, you can't leave, and, uh, we, and we have your phone. And he just kept going, and, and so that's how they called 911. Oh, so they on had his with phone. With, on his phone. Interesting. Okay. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us today and talking about this. I know uh, it hasn't been that long ago, just a little over a year ago, so I really appreciate the time and the energy and the insight you provided. So thanks, Bill. Sure. Don't miss our next podcast, Stage 3, Focus on Treatments, Traditional and Complementary. An interview with Carly Simo McIntosh, who lost her sister, Christy Simo Barranco, to leukemia. Learn more about post-traumatic growth through metahabilitation and about Dr. Joyce Michael Flynn by visiting metahab.com. You'll also be able to order Dr. Joyce Michael Flynn's book, Turning Tragedy into Triumph. Sliver of Hope, the podcast series on post-traumatic growth, is presented by MetaHab and a production of Multipoint Content Strategies. If you'd like to contribute either your personal story or the story of someone you know, please email a brief description of your story to mystory at metahab.com. Thanks for listening. The purpose of this podcast is to provide a general discussion of the topic presented, which may or may not apply to the individual listener. It is not intended to provide and is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor, therapist, mental health professional, or other qualified medical professional. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the interviewer or guest.